0: You're listening to the Scott Thompson show podcast on 900 CHML. Thanks for being here. As I say, Scott Radley in for the vacationing Scott Thompson this week. I I hope that I am not jinxing something. I hope I'm not getting ahead of myself, but you know, we're hearing about kids going back to school and class in the fall, and we're hearing about things opening again and sports getting going and businesses opening. and, And it certainly seems And again, fingers crossed, touching wood, doing all that stuff. It certainly seems like we are on the back end of the pandemic. Hoping, but it certainly seems that way, that you know, we can begin to see the the return to normal. Maybe not a hundred percent normal, but a return to normal-ish. Yes, the applause is well warranted. Well, that being said, we now it's we now have an opportunity to re-examine and study and take a look back. We're, We're no longer treading water. We can get on shore and begin to look at what happened and how we ended up there and what happened while we were in the water to use a, maybe a weak example. And one of those things is the mental and emotional health of adolescents. There is lots of anecdotal evidence and lots of stories and lots of people suggesting that this time this 18 months give or take of quarantining and being away and being alone and not having school and all this has been incredibly hard on kids psychological and mental and emotional well-beings. But is that true? And if it is, what does that mean? To what degree is this something that's fixable or have we damaged kids forever not to be totally bleak, but what does all this mean? Well, a team from Brock University is looking into this, into the mental health of adolescents during the pandemic. A Professor Danielle Siriani Molnar is a professor of child and youth studies. She joins us now. Uh, professor, thanks for doing this today.
1: Oh, thank you for having me.
0: Uh, let me throw out a suggestion to start with that I believe to be true, but I, I'm not a scientist. I'm not a doctor. I don't know this. I, I just think it is. And that is that your adolescent years are among the most important that you will have for developing a sense of self and a sense of interpersonal relationships and and how to be a human being dealing in a society is that fair
1: i would say that's absolutely fair absolutely so it's a prime time for identity development so it's a time when Uh, adolescents they start moving away from parents and more towards their friends so not that parents aren't very important during this stage they absolutely are but friends take more and more of a central role as adolescence unfolds so it's a critically important time and the other thing we know about adolescence is that most mental disorders start during adolescence that's when we first start seeing the early signs so definitely a critical period
0: So spending 18 months away from your friends and communicating only virtually or by phone, that that would then seem to be kind of fraught with landmines.
1: Absolutely. It's definitely been a difficult time. I've seen it as a scientist and researcher in our research. I'm also a parent of two adolescents, so I've seen it firsthand at home. And, you know, I definitely think that uh, adolescents and children are very adaptable and show high levels of resilience, but it's definitely been a difficult time based on our data.
0: Is the communication and the interpersonal relationships in that time? Is it, is it just the verbal communication that can help that? Can you, can normal things happen if it's just verbal so you could do it over zoom or is there a physical component to it too? The interaction, does it play a role?
1: I think that the interaction certainly plays a role. So um, a lot of the teens in our data were saying that, you know, at first, so earlier on in the pandemic, uh, things like Zoom and, you know, chatting by text and, you know, playing video games online with each other, um, that seemed to be okay in the beginning. But as the pandemic wore on and on and on, Um, From what we're hearing from the teenagers is that didn't fill the gap and that there was much higher levels of perceived social disconnection and higher levels of loneliness.
0: Mm. And and you you and your team, I, I believe, have suggested and correct me if I say anything wrong here, but that there was an uptick in the number of mental health issues not right away, not as soon as we all went into lockdown the first time, but once the second lockdown came and then further on from there, why would that be?
1: So this study that you're referring to, we were specifically looking at um, how perfectionism was related to mental health difficulties, specifically anxiety and depression. And what we found is uh, adolescents who are higher in perfectionism are those who feel that everything has to be absolutely perfect all the time, that they're highly self-critical of themselves. What we found is from pre-pandemic, because we, we actually had started this study long before COVID and COVID interrupted, but pre-pandemic to the first government-mandated lockdown in Ontario, we actually saw depressive symptoms decrease a little bit. So you could almost see the teenagers just taking a big, deep breath, saying, like, "Ah, I have a moment to think the schedule has slowed down. But what we saw was from first government mandated lockdown to the second, we saw a steep increase in depressive symptoms. And that was very concerning, showing that at that point, a lot of the adolescents were starting to struggle.
0: So once the, once the, as you say, once the rest and the, the respite was done and they realized this was in for the long haul, it's when it happened.
1: Yes. Yes. That's correct.
0: Now, again, I mean, this is, this is an ongoing thing that we're looking into this. I don't think we have all the answers right now. In fact, I know we don't, but would you believe that this was more pronounced in adolescence than in adults? Because we've also heard about adults who have had challenges with this time alone and not being able to get together. Is, this, is there something unique about adolescence that would make it more pronounced with them?
1: Um, I have, like I don't have specific data to speak to that. I know in another study that we're doing, this is on emerging adults, which are includes the age range from 18 to 25, so young adults. Uh, We're seeing similar things, Um, but I would think from a theoretical perspective, just talking about adolescence, um, I mean, this has been tough on everyone, so not to belittle the experience for anybody, but I think adolescence in particular, because it's a time where their identity is being formed and it's a time of growth and especially a time of gaining independence, that that was taken from a lot of adolescents. So, you know, at times when, you know, you're finally able to go to the movies without parents or, you know, to the local coffee shop and you're starting to get that independence, I think that's one of the reasons. I suspect, I don't have data specifically to that, but just knowing about that period, I think that definitely played into it and made it tougher on adolescents.
0: You know, some people said that they liked the being at home and liked maybe the solitude and liked not having all the stuff in life that they otherwise would have do you do you think that do you think there's a lot of people who would fall into that category or even those who say it maybe are you know kind of excusing or or trying to make things better make it sound better by saying they really enjoyed it do you think a lot of people did like the situation we were in
1: Um, It's hard to say. Based on our data, um, certainly early on, we heard that, definitely. And even in our data, second lockdown and beyond, there's definitely variance and heterogeneity. So there are definitely people um, who did adapt very well, and they found that being home um, was actually more conducive for them. So I definitely think that there's people out there. Our data shows just based on trends that at least among adolescents and the young adult population, that they were a smaller group uh, relative to those who found it incredibly difficult and challenging. Mm.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I mean, look, we know that as much as, when we were all teenagers, I mean, you you talk about the independence. We love the independence, but there are some kids, you know, for whatever reason, uh, school is not a great situation for them. They might feel bullied. They might just feel awkward, whatever. Are there kids who may have benefited from this last 18 months by not having to be around all their peers?
1: I would think so. So again, it's, you know, we're learning about this. We're still uh, going through a lot of our own data. I know certainly early on in the pandemic when we were interviewing uh, teenagers, there were a lot of teenagers who commented that um, they learned better at home, they were able to focus better. Um, this was a minority compared to the rest, so just to make sure that's clear, but there were definitely some students where they felt safer at home, they felt more comfortable at home. We heard from some youth it gave them time to uh, get even closer with their family. And so there are definitely some youth who uh, definitely had that experience, but at least in our data they were a smaller group i would say
0: i I just wonder if there's a lesson here going forward that if there are some kids that seem to have done better even if it's a small minority should we be encouraging that some kids do school online as opposed to in class because they seem to do better at it or is that really because of the development that we've talked about is that really maybe solving one problem by creating others
1: Yeah, it's hard for me to comment on that. I think it's way too early to make any substantive conclusions on that. I mean, the bulk of the research I've seen supports being in school. Um, If anything, I would say the data that I'm seeing and reading from other labs as well suggests that we need to improve school culture. We need to have a lot more support put in the schools because they're not meeting the needs of all the
0: students. You're listening to the Scott Thompson show podcast on 900 CHML and and not to be silly. And and that's really not the point here, but I mean, literally almost every time we hear about some teenager that does something really terrible, we always hear that they were a loner. And, And so I'm not sure that we want to be encouraging that even if it may be something that they like, we, I think you're right. We need to be probably finding ways to improve their ability to deal with other people or find ways to make the culture better.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think we need a lot more supports in schools. I think that it was, um, you know, the pandemic definitely taught us the lesson that um, we're short of support in schools. And, you know, we need more put in there so that we can support all students and especially the heterogeneity among students. So it's not one size fits all. So uh, that's become crystal clear, especially during the pandemic, that, There's a lot of needs. Um, It's good that mental health has been talked about so much so that, but we need to kind of walk the walk now. So put in those supports and not just talk about it because there's a lot of students in need right now.
0: As you mentioned a couple of moments ago, uh, one of the things that you've really focused on is kids who do we say suffer with or deal with, or have a a sense of perfectionism. Um, Why that, that sounds like a niche, That sounds like a very specific group of kids. Why that? Why would perfectionism be something we would look at?
1: Yeah, um, a couple of things. That's the primary focus of my research. And the one thing is a lot of people, when you say perfectionism, They assume it's a good thing, so it's one of the most cliched things you hear in a job interview when asked about what your number one fault is. People say, "Oh, I'm a perfectionist," Um, but what they're really trying to say is they think it's a good thing. Um, It's a badge, but the research has been, (laughs) but the research has been crystal clear in that perfectionism has significant uh, mental and physical health effects. So uh, one of our recent papers showed that people who are higher in perfectionism, these were young adults, um, they had more dysregulated immune systems. Immune systems weren't working as well. And that was through biological markers. So it wasn't just self-report. Other research shows people higher in perfectionism are more vulnerable to depression, anxiety, eating disorders, um, much higher, much more reactive to stress. Um, so that's, I became interested in that a long time ago because, um, as someone who did have perfectionistic tendencies, uh, when I was younger, I was one of those people who thought, Oh, it's why I'm successful. It's why I do well in school when in fact, it was quite the opposite. It was actually getting in the way and, you know, ignoring all of these physical and mental health problems that go with it. So I became kind of enamored in the field and even now continually continually surprised at this, how harmful this way of being is and you know a lot of people think oh it's a niche but um, a study came out I believe it was 2019 of the United Kingdom and it showed that perfectionism has been steadily increasing in Canada, United Kingdom and the USA and our own research from we've just completed about three studies and I'm shocked. Forty-seven percent of our sample, and these are young people, are self-identifying as perfectionistic.
0: So, all right. So, well, let me jump in for good. a sec because yeah. because one thing that then I, I probably should have started with this because mm-hmm. with this question, what does perfectionistic mean then? Because I have a I have an idea in my mind, but if forty-seven sure. percent are saying they're perfectionistic, I, I don't know that my definition works anymore.
1: Yeah, so the question we specifically ask them is, do you self-identify as a perfectionist? So that's the question that they're actually answering, yes or no. Um, But the way we define it in the literature, and like we have scales to measure this, is people who have extraordinarily high unrealistic expectations, so it's either perfect or nothing, and high levels of self-criticism. And what we're finding is I also had the perfectionism scales in the data that we had. And when I look at the scaled scores for the self-identified perfectionist versus the non, um, much, much higher. So they're actually being validated by the scale. So it's not just they're misconstruing what it is. um, They really are high. And just to give you a sense of what I mean by unrealistic standards, um, I can give you an example where a youth told me, I believe they got, it was either an 82 or an 84%. And the response was, I failed. And so there was no margin of error whatsoever.
0: Wow, I'd hate to think what they would think of my high school grades. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, They weren't that. Um, So, but I mean, there is a, there is a, we want people to be, striving to be great at stuff we don't want people to be filled with malaise and laissez-faire and not caring so how do we find that balance i mean we're maybe walking down a slightly dead bit of a tangent here but how do we how do we find the balance between saying be great but don't worry about not being great
1: that's such a great question i'm so glad you asked me that Because right now, um, we just started a new study of youth. And one of the questions we ask participants in the interview portion is, what is the opposite of perfectionism? And I don't have their answers yet because the study just started. Um, But I've always been fascinated by that because I think a lot of people commonly misconstrue that if you're not perfectionistic, that you're necessarily lazy or that you don't care or that you don't have expectations. But I know from a theoretical standpoint and what's in the literature so far is that you can strive to be excellent without striving to be perfect. So, you know, I can't wait to hear what the youth uh, think about this from their perspective. It's more important to hear their voices. Um, But I know from the adult literature and just from the theories out there that the opposite is definitely not being lazy (laughs) and it's not not caring. So striving to be excellent would be um, having high expectations that are reasonable, and more importantly, it's being able to accept failure and learn from it and move forward, rather than interpreting failure as "I'm a worthless human being."
0: So is there a it. difference? Is there a difference then between work ethic and perfectionism? Because one of the things that I hear now is you'll see stuff on social media, or whatever, about people who, well, I don't really want to work, or I want to, you know, I want to find something and only, you know, do. And and a lot of us who have, you know, grown up with a really, really strong work ethic kind of look at that and go, really? Like, if you want to get ahead, you got to really work. But is, is there a difference between perfectionism and that work ethic idea?
1: Well, absolutely, because we, the fascinating thing about perfectionism, at least that I found, is everyone always assumes that people who are higher in perfectionism are necessarily more successful. But what they're confounding is conscientiousness, so being planful, being a hard worker. So you can definitely be those things without being perfectionistic. What's ironic is people higher in perfectionism also tend to be higher in procrastination, and so it actually hinders their work ethic to some huh. extent, because imagine having um, the mindset where it absolutely has to be perfect or you're worthless. You can imagine how that could feed into procrastination because yeah, you, you are freeze paralyzed with fear. Right. Yeah. Like I can't do it. So then you start engaging in self-handicapping behaviors because that way. Oh, it's not my fault. It's because I didn't have enough time. Or so you're kind of engaging in these behaviors. So I think it's a big misconception that people hire in perfectionism are necessarily harder workers or more successful. It's the people who strive to be excellent and are conscientious, um, which is different than perfectionism.
0: We only have a few seconds left, so let's get back to the adolescents for just one second and tie it into what we've been talking about then. Um, Earlier on the show here, we were talking with an education expert about the back to school and all the rest. Um, Will the high achievers and those who lean towards perfectionism in your mind, who have been doing work from home, uh, remote learning, haven't been in class, will they be the ones who are going to then come back to school generally and be way ahead of their classmates because they've been just so diving in to make sure they're perfect or are they going to be the ones who not being at school and with this freezing you're talking about are they going to be the ones who have been affected and are struggling by not being at school when they go back
1: I think it's hard to know like I don't have the data to speak to that right now I'm, I would think that you're going to see a bit of both um my feeling at this point would be that a lot are going to be struggling because a lot of the students who are higher in perfectionism feel like they've lost progress and feel like they've fallen behind, even if they haven't the perceptions there. So I could see higher levels of stress and them feeling a lot more pressure when they go back.
0: Fascinating stuff. Uh, Professor Danielle Siriani Molnar at Brock university, professor of child and youth studies. Really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this.
1: Thank you so much.
0: The Scott Thompson show weekdays from noon to three on 900 CHML.